Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Port of Harlem Talk Radio, and I'm your host and also publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine at portofharlem.net. If you're listening via the internet, you can type your questions in the comment box. You can also call to listen by dialing on your phone at 516-531-9540. And if you want to ask a question after you're connected, press 1, and please be in a quiet place. You can also visit portofharlem.net and click POH Talk Radio from the menu to hear this and past episodes. We're also available on about 10 podcast platforms. And last but not least, We Talk Productions sponsors Port of Harlem Talk Radio. Our first guest is Dr. Ida E. Jones. Dr. Jones just penned Mary McLeod Bethune, True Democracy and the Fight for Universal Suffrage for the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. Jones is also author of Mary McLeod Bethune in Washington, D.C., Activism and Education in Local Circle. circle. The archivist at Morgan State University will talk with us today about Bethune, the history of the women's right to vote, and Vice President nominee Kamala Harris. Welcome, Dr. Jones. Good evening, Mr. Young. Nice to hear from you. Yes, likewise. You know, um, when I talked to you earlier about doing the show, you mentioned that we only have a half hour to talk about Dr. Bethune. And, of course, I know that there's so much to talk about anyone. But, of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is just Bethune-Cookman College. But when I go back and refresh my memory about her, yes, we could talk about her all day. But we only got 30 minutes. So my first question to you is initially she wanted to be a missionary, as you know, for the Presbyterian Church in West Africa. And ultimately she was rejected by the church in part due to her race, gender, and unmarried status. For me, it's interesting how the married status of people then and now, including Kamala Harris, becomes a topic of evaluation, especially for women. How did Bethune navigate the dilemma of not being married at that time? She didn't navigate it. She accepted their decision and moved on. And so she had completed her work at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and actually had met uh, Dwight L. Moody, who had... um, I guess, helped her kind of awaken the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the third gift of the of Godhead in her life. So she was a very spiritually attuned Christian person. And in light of the fact that the rejection came from man, it really comes from God. So she accepted that and moved and transitioned back to South Carolina and eventually goes to Georgia and meets Lucy Craft Laney, who tells her the mission field is the education of African children or African-American children coming out of enslavement because there was great need in terms of awakening young people in the wake of the end of chattel slavery in North America. Okay, so you mentioned two people's names, Moody. Uh, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Many people from Metro Chicago in particular know about that. Was Moody himself black or was he non-black? He was a white man. Oh, really? Okay. He was a, yeah, well, he was a white, what we would call holy Pentecostal, holiness Pentecostal person, yes. Okay, and the Lucy lady, what's her full name? And, and she was the other great influencer, so what's her full name, and how does she influence Mrs. Bethune? Lucy Craft Laney opened a school, I believe, called the Haynes Institute in Georgia, and she was very similar to Bethune. Her parents were enslaved. She was freeborn. She was a person of dark complexion, and she was also a Presbyterian and a daughter of the South. So she understood the universe in which Bethune was crafted and born. So she was really talking to her other self, so to speak. And there is a picture on the blog post that you mentioned of the her, Mrs. Bethune, and Lucy Craft Laney, among other women. Uh, Charlotte Hawkins Brown is a third person. There were four black women who founded schools. And Bethune, Lucy Craft Laney, Charlotte Hawkins Brown, and Nanny Helen Burroughs were the four women who founded institutions and schools of education and higher learning for African-Americans, women in particular and girls in the first quarter of the 20th century. And out of all of those schools, the Bethune-Cookman University is the only living or existing institution of those four. Interesting. So I never saw... very good... Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, never knew, I never knew there was only... I didn't know there was only four. And, and you were explaining some connection between the four? Go ahead. Uh, Yes. Um, In terms of, as we get into some issues of complexion, they were all physically brown women, I mean, very visibly brown women, 
who had connections to enslaved persons in terms of their family. I believe Charlotte Hawkins Brown was the only one who hailed from New England, my region of the country, <laughs> whereas the other women were mid-Atlantic and southern in born and birth. So they, their vision and their determination in a very uh, racially hostile as well as gender-unfriendly space, they sought to create these institutions to train and hone the talents of black girls to go into whatever aspect of vocation they could do to be able to make money for themselves and to once again, as Kelly Miller says, become leaven and rise and raise the race through their presence. You need to become leaven? Did you say leaven? Leaven or yeast, yes. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> I just love I love the way I love the way people phrase things. Love it. Okay, <laughs> but anyway, but did the four know each other, or do you know if they knew each other? Did they form some type of bond before or after founding these four schools for Black women? Yeah, the four knew each other. I believe um, Lucy Craft Lady was the oldest. She was born in the 1850s. Bethune is born in the 1870s. I want to say Nanny Helen Burroughs was also born in the 1870s, and I think. Charlotte Hawkins Brown was also born in the 1870s. So they were all contemporaries, give or take 15 or 10 years of difference in age. And they all did know each other. And that picture that is on the blog post, the only one missing is Nanny Helen Burroughs. Because if all four of them were there, that would have been an epic picture of all of them together in one space. However, the three of them are in that picture. And it's a remarkable picture held by the Mullen Spinger Research Center at Howard. And uh, really helps you understand the importance of what education meant to the newly emancipated as well as the pre-enslavement free black population. It also means I need to go back and look at the blog and look at the picture. But for others who want to see the picture uh, on portofhollum.net, you can uh, Google Ida, Ida Jones's name and you'll see uh, this link to uh, the blog and you can see the picture yourself. But I definitely had to go back and look at that. But going to question number two, um, it's about her being married. So she was married to Alberta's Bethune for a short while. Can you shed some light on how that affected her ability to be accepted as a leader? That's a very good question. I just finished a book by Tanana Reeve Dew, which is a fictional account of the life of Madam C.J. Walker called The Black Rose. And there's a, the character of Bethune and the character of Walker are talking. And she says, well, you know, you have a good man in C.J. Walker who stands beside you because Albertus could not take my rising uh, I guess celebrity of sorts, I'm paraphrasing, but basically him that he felt unwelcomed in her future. In her biography by Rackham Holt that she, I guess, worked with on, this is Bethune, she basically says that they agreed to walk in different directions. They never formally were divorced. So he was um, in the, yeah, they never formally divorced. And um, he was, as her complexion, very dark complected. She had one son, Albertus Jr., and she had one grandson, who she adopted and raised. He just passed away at the age of 90-something plus recently, and he himself had a number of children, so the Bethune legacy goes on. But um, oddly enough, they agreed to walk away from one another. And I believe because African-American men at the time, well, she says in the book that he wanted to make money, and he was an insurance salesman and had a variety of different professions or careers that he pursued. And so education, we know to this very day, is not a very profitable uh, business for anyone to go into. The profit are in the human resources that you cultivate who become, you know, great light for the future. So the idea of opening a school, starting a school was basically a, a vow of poverty because you were never going to make the kind of money you could have made selling insurance, being a traveling salesman, or any other kinds of endeavor that he sought to pursue. So that led to the cleavage in the marriage, and they just simply walked away from one another. She took her son and went to Florida. Hmm. And so I guess he became just uh, a husband in name, and but did that affect her ability to be a leader in any way that you know of? Not at all. Not at all. She received, I believe, three or four honorary degrees, but her preferred title was Mrs. Bethune. And that handle of the MRS was exclusive to her because we know that African-American women coming out of enslavement were painted with all kinds of derogatory adjectives. And as a result, an unmarried woman, was, even Ida B. Wells went through this, considered to be of loose morals and therefore susceptible to causing, you know, bad things to happen in neighborhoods. So when you are married, now all of a sudden you are, quote, claimed and esteemed as a wife, but still racism and Jim Crow sought to belittle and demean the bonds of legal marriage that African people or African Americans had done. So the idea of a man not being able to provide for his wife and his family 
you see this also in literature when you get to the quote black um, arts movement and the black uh, renaissance of the 20s, that black men were greatly frustrated by being unable to financially provide for their families. So that leads to lots of other kinds of bad behavior because their quote manhood is at challenge. So the idea that black women who are wives would do things to supplement the income or to encourage his self-esteem in a very hostily, openly hostile environment becomes very key to how black love affair and black relationships were able to kind of use the home or the church or their private intimate moments to secure that bond between each other as partners. Okay, now you mentioned another person's name in there as a person I suspect wasn't married and she had to face some kind of challenges. Did you mention the person's name in there? Uh, I talked about Ida B. Wells, I think. I might have mentioned no, no, her. Man, no, no, on your, no, on your last comments, you mentioned that she was unlike some other person who wasn't married, I suspect, and she faced some difficulties with doing what she wanted to do. I, I can't remember. I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. In my head. Um, but the idea of being an MRS was very important. But for single or unmarried black women, you were open to, I, well, Ida B. Wells, I didn't mention Ida B. Wells, because when she was unmarried as a young woman, her parents died with the yellow fever. So she was right. responsible for her younger siblings. And before she met uh, Ferdinand Barnett, she was unmarried for a number of years and did a lot of her work prior to her marriage and married, actually, quote, as a spinster in her early 30s at that time. But nevertheless, um, she did the work regardless, and she was painted as being possibly of loose moral values because what kind of skill did you have to exchange in the marketplace? And so right, that's yeah. what they always painted black women as being, you know, using their bodies as ways to make money in um, other ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, just listening to that, um, there's a um, Hattie Lou Theater in, in uh, Memphis has a play on her, and it's on, on, our, on our page, too. Uh, on our webpage under activities where it talks when there's, and you can see the, uh, the production for free. And they speak of that too, of how she was unmarried because it affected her ability to do things because she was unmarried. But so it seemed like Mrs. Bethune sort of got around that by making sure that there was a Mrs. in front of her name. That's what sounds like you're saying. At all times. Yes. Yeah. So interestingly, when uh, her girls or her school for girls merged with Cookman, which was a school for boys, her name came first. And so there we, we know who was being Bethune-Cookman. How did that come about? Well, she kept her relationship with the Presbyterian Church until the 1920s. And when the Presbyterian Church, as Haney, Lucy Craft uh, Laney had also experienced, was not being as financially supportive, she politically switched to being Methodist Episcopal. And Cookman was a slightly faltering male Methodist school. So she married her growing and rising Bethune uh, in Daytona Institute with the Cookman Institute and switched to the Methodist Episcopal Church to basically secure the funding for her institution. So it was a strategic and political move on her part, and the Methodist Church had a number of African Americans who remained in the denomination and didn't leave to be AME, AME Zion, or CME. So she connected herself with that. And actually, when she comes to D.C., joins the historic Asbury UMC Church here on 11th Street Northwest and remains very involved and very active in connecting with Guild and the Women's Leagues to help fund money and find money for her school. And so I guess because she was more stable, uh, her name came first. Pretty much. She broke with that Mm -hmm. deal. Yeah, money talks. Uh, If if you're listening to, and we do have at least one listener that's listening now, and many of our listeners listening afterwards. But if you're listening now and you have a um, question, just press one, and that that, uh, that lets us know that you have a question for uh, Dr. Jones or myself. And that number again, or you have the number. The number is to call um, 516-531-9540. And if you're already online, just press one, and uh, that should indicate to us that you have a question. Moving right along. Um, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, uh, which I understand still exists, was formed in July 1896 by Josephine St. Pierre. And I must mention that her father was from Martinique. And I mention that because so often there's this conversation about who's African American and who isn't. And her father was from Martinique. And Mary Church, Mary Church Terrell founded the group. And uh, Mary McLaw Bethune founded the National Council of Negro Women in 1935, almost 40 years later. What made or make the organization different? 
The NACWC was birthed out of an effort to cross coalition between various women's groups that are around the country. They had state and regional federations of women's clubs, so they sought to galvanize their leadership, their membership into one collective. This is the group founded in 1896, right? You're speaking yes, of? Yes, the NACW. Yes, okay. they are still an active and viable organization. They are headquartered here in Washington, D.C. at 16th and R Street Northwest. So that is the organization that was a national, regional, and state organization that sought to galvanize their strength in unity under an organized umbrella. Mrs. Bethune was president of the NACW, I believe, from 1924 to 1928, and during her presidential administration, helped them secure the purchase of their headquarters, uh, one of the four headquarters they actually purchased in Washington, D.C. Uh, and yet, you see, Mary Church Terrell was the principal uh, or primary national president, the first national president of that organization. So in 1935, Mrs. Bethune founds the National Council of Negro Women. And this was very similar or parallel to the NACW. However, it was different in terms that she had collegiate sororities, church organizations, Masonic women organizations, and organizations of individuality come together under the umbrella of a national council. So they would become a lobbying agency, an educational agency, and the principal clearinghouse for issues pertaining to Negro women and children. So unlike the NACWC that basically took its membership threads and wove it into a tapestry called the National Association of College Women's Clubs, the National Council of Negro Women were different organizations of different stripes, persuasions, and means into one lobbying agency that would then agree and galvanize their membership around the principles, the four principles of the NCNW, which was education, dissemination of information, and lobbying on behalf of Negro women and children. So it's, it's, it sounds like an organizational difference. Because the NACWC was just simply one organization coming together. The NCNW was hundreds of independent organizations willing to agree on the, the end. So the means might be different if I'm a college sorority. The, the means might be different if I'm a neighborhood biz whiz club. The means might be different if I'm going to be a church women's group. But we can all agree that we are Negro women in our various spaces, and as a result, our voices t- together in concert under a national umbrella can then tell elected officials we represent 500,000 women across the country. And look, we can talk, do speak, this. In the, yeah. You're speaking that the, the latter group, the second one that yes. the actually the NCNW, founded, yes. was more like um, uh, an organization of organizations exactly. that, that only had its means, or the, I should say the end, as being its, as being its glue. Exactly. And the other organization was, they tried to become like one group, I guess? Well, they were pulling together the regional and state clubs. Okay. So if you're in Massachusetts, where Josephine St. Pierre often hailed from, and you're Mary Talbert, who lives in New York, you're going to have issues along the ideas of race and gender. But it might be different for you in one area versus another area. In terms of nursery and daycare issues, in terms of educational apportionment, there were all kinds of issues that were very unique to regional differences. So as a result, to learn the strategies of what they were doing in Florida might help somebody else in Connecticut. What they were doing in California might help somebody else in Michigan. So the idea of the NACW coming together and organizing themselves with their National Notes magazine would help them strategize and galvanize that information so that it could move together as one but yet still address regional and state issues that are different. Okay. Sometimes you just wonder if there's a need to have two different organizations whose, I guess, overall goals can be very similar, but some functions could be different. And I guess well, sometimes it's hard to... Well, there is a rumor to... behind that as well, that um, Mrs. Bethune wanted to run for another term of office at the NACWC, but they did not want her to be, quote, taking up the presidency. So when she was not allowed to pursue another term, she withdrew and founded her own organization, where she became the founding president and stayed for life. She um, then eventually would um, apprentice Dorothy Farabee, who was the second president, then uh, Vivian Carter Mason, the third president, and then Dorothy Height, the second longest-serving president, and now a series of other intimate presidents or interim presidents, and now Jeanetta Cole is at the helm of the NCNW. So Mrs. Bethune had an understanding that people might have found it uh, a bit tyrannical, 
but she founded her own organization and ran it accordingly. And she did not seek to micromanage because she had educators who were medical experts. She had chemists. She had scientists and journalists. So she had all kinds of persons who could do their actual work. And then she would galvanize that strength, not try to co-opt it or uh, overlook it, but galvanize that. Yeah, it's interesting because even when I bring it to the day, it reminds me of the, of the differences between the Southern Christian Leadership Organization and Operation PUSH. And then later on, uh, Al Sharpton's group and now this other group, I can't think of a name. Um, but, you know, to, sometimes to me it's almost like which leader you believe in as opposed to what ends you believe in. Yeah, that's been a historical problem for black people. And, and we fight over the means while the end gets further and further away from us. And I think because of the fact that we had such a, what you call it, um, concentrated body of brilliance because of racism, it led to some kinds of overlap and some frustration. So you find some of that behavior repeating itself in space and time with African-American organizations. Because in particular, I remember when Operation Push became more known. I don't know if it's when I, I don't remember when, actually when it started or if I was even old enough to digest it. But I remember with such talk about why was Jesse Jackson starting Operation Push and being from uh, Metro Chicago, I mean, it was it had an impact on us directly. You know, we couldn't get up in the morning without, on Saturday morning, without listening to uh, Operation Push because on all the black stations. And then you wonder, okay, well, maybe SLC would have been stronger if Jesse Jackson would have stayed there. So when you told me the story about these two different groups, I just wondered, you know, why they just didn't find a way to together but I guess they hadn't and I guess and you have a comment on that yes or a thought on that. because the SC, yeah the SCLC comes out of the Progressive National Baptist Convention in which you have um, Martin Luther King Ralph Abernathy Venture Booth as we've talked about and others who really kind of grow that into a kind of service arm of the Progressive National Baptist Convention. And we have now, because history has given us time, to see that there were such strong personalities and ideologies that it was too small of a planet for all of them to inhabit. So by the 1970s is when Operation Push, the Slash Rainbow Coalition by Jackson is going to be formed, because when Martin Luther King is uh, fatally assassinated, that it now becomes, quote, headless. And so there were a number of persons trying to become the new head. And that never was going to be another charismatic leader like King. And the time had also kind of grown differently because you have the rise of the black power movement. Then you have the rise of the women's movement. So the era in which King ascends to authority and leadership nationally after the Montgomery bus boycott is going to be much different by the time you get to the late 60s, early 70s. So the idea of, quote, becoming the next king or becoming the next charismatic leader of, quote, this Baptist arm, it's going to be very fraught with a lot of egos and personalities. So Jackson decided to go and live on his own planet and create his own space. And he didn't even <laughs> catalyze his effort to become uh, the presidential candidate in the 1980s to make a national campaign for the Democratic um, Party as a presidential candidate. So then he was able to galvanize his own kind of um, community. So it's very interesting to see how that goes down, now that we have enough time from that moment to really kind of critically analyze these things. But um, yeah, once again, for, I think for, because of, yeah, go ahead. Not only for our listeners, um, uh, Ida mentioned that we spoke about um, Booth, Reverend Booth, earlier. That was an off conversation. So you didn't miss that. You did miss an earlier piece of us talking about Booth. But in, general, in short, we talked about how um, uh, Reverend Booth, who was in Ohio at that point, had helped Dr. King form the uh, separate Baptist organization, I think the Progressive Baptist, in order to have him a platform that was different from the National Baptist. Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. Okay. Because this is a story that I need to look into further for various reasons, which we won't get into in this conversation. But, um, wow. So, but I see the similarities and I see the pattern. And I think what you're saying is that oftentimes these organizations they don't necessarily die, but they grow or they split off because of personalities, because you have too many strong personalities in one spot, <laughs> and somebody has to go off and do something different. Would, would, would it, does, that have, does that make some sense? It does. Reverend Wyatt T. Walker said, we divide the logic because we multiply by dividing. And so Say that again, as please. a result, uh, the late Wyatt T. Walker said, we multiply by dividing. We defy the mathematics. So or, black organizational Communities of black people in general 
multiply by dividing. Gotcha. Okay, of the many accomplishments of Bethune, which ones can you think of that Kamala Harris and her role as vice presidential nominee has benefited most from? Well, I was very impressed to hear her acceptance of the nomination to run for VP. She made mention of Bethune and Chisholm and Jordan and all the constellation of African-American women who had gone before her. So to her credit, I take off my hat. The best uh, link I could think of in terms of Bethune to Harris would be one in which she galvanizes club women. So we're back to club women again. The, the mainstream press as well as the African-American press have talked about her affiliation with Howard University, the greatest uh, historically or predominantly black institution in the, the pantheon. And then, of course, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, the first African-American collegiate organization founded at Howard University as well. So like Mrs. Bethune, she brings, quote, her people with her. And so that, I think, is very interesting and very essential to African-American women who are seeking political office. Because all too often we find ourselves outside the pale of consideration. And there was a book that was done in the 70s called All the Women are White, All the Blacks are Men, But Some of Us are Brave. And it talks about the fact that black women at the intersection of being African-American and female, two marginalized groups, we are literally without voice, without vision in terms of how people see us. So African-American women have always had to create for themselves a space, people with them. So the club women be it the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority or the larger, quote, Divine Nine, uh, African-American Panhellenic organization. I agree with because I never even heard what the Divine Nine, because I'm not a, a black frat person, but I love the way she brought that into the national discussion about this existing of the Divine Nine. But go ahead, Ida, please. Yeah, yeah. So that organization represents the, Af- the nine African-American collegiate organizations, fraternity Greek letter organizations. So there is community there. Now, of course, we all don't get along or agree, nor are we all Democrats. I am a member of one of the organizations, uh, is that we simply see, quote, the race card, and that we can pick her apart in private conversations, but we must galvanize ourselves as a united front on her behalf. And, of course, all of us might not support her in terms of our membership with the Divine Nine or the Howard University Alumni Association or the larger HBCU uh, organizational alumni affiliates, but to see, quote, one of our own, get to that level and be able to articulate clearly on our behalf, it gives, quote, a shivering sense of pride that she's able to do that. So at some point, we kind of lay aside our personal differences, ideally, and go behind her wholeheartedly. So I think that is what Mrs. Bethune had done with her NCNW, as well when she held her position at the National Youth Administration under FDR. And Mrs. Bethune even said towards the end of her life when asked if she, what would she do if she could live her life over again, she said, I would go to New York and I would run for Congress. And she told wow. Adam Clayton Powell wouldn't have to worry because there's room for all of us. So she mm-hmm. really understood the power of politics as well as Mrs. Chisholm did as a means to an end, to get the apportionments we need, to get the judges in place that we need. All of our lives are dependent upon those elected officials who literally legislate our movements and our activity. And so we need people who look like us, who feel our pain, to be in those spaces to make sure that pain is alleviated and to make sure that more of us who look a certain way are at the table for conversation and decision. Yes, and uh, that, that, that's just wonderful. But I guess the other part I want to ask, and I don't want to have much time, is that I want to go back to her, how her, she dealt with being uh, married but not married, let's say that way, and that how people oftentimes evaluate people based on their marriage status and how people did the same thing with uh, Kamala Harris. You know, people had to find out who she was married, if she was married, and who she was married to. And so it'll be interesting to see how she continues to navigate um, that issue as Ms. Bethune navigated her issue around being married or not married. Any thoughts? That's a very good, yeah, very good question. I know we are closed for time. Unfortunately, there is gender roles and specifications for movement in this country. And as much as we want to believe ourselves pluralistic and, quote, inclusive, according to your definition as the magazine is, there are still expectations of women of a certain class to have certain kinds of strictures in place, one of which is to be married, one is which to be highly educated, and one is which to be aesthetically pleasing and of a certain size, shape, and color. So all of these things that we find, quote, anathema to, quote, our liberated and free minds, there is still the media, and there are still pockets and pools of persons who definitely have to put you in a box and make sure that they understand the box confines and controls you. 
so the idea of her being married, and that has been contentious, that some people said she's married to a white man, and, or actually he's Jewish from what I understand, that that's offensive. Why did she marry a black? So you can never please everybody. But I think at the end of the day, she made her life and her choices, and she's pleased with her decision. And Amen. that's when you're going to have to, as a, just like Mrs. Bethune, I'm Mrs. Bethune. She made, well, where is he? Right. He's my husband. <laughs> well, why Period. can't I see him? Here's his son. <laughs> so as you see me, you see him, because I'm the missus. So, I mean, I'm sure she wouldn't have been as flippant or as surly as I am, but as African-American women who have been plagued by so much stereotypes and other persons speaking and defining us, that mm-hmm. in this generation, in this century, they're now taking off those shackles and yokes and saying, this is who I am. I'm not asking you whether you like it, but this is who you'll call me. As Sidney Poitier said, my name is Mr. Tibbs. So All right, for a century, Black women are saying, my All name right, is Africana woman. <laughs> So, you know how you get me going. I'm, I'm ready for a service. All right, Ida. But I can't thank you enough for the, uh, for the um, invitation All right, to participate. All right, lady from Cambridge. <laughs> thank you so That's much right. again for your West. All right, thanks so much West, for your West. time again. Go ahead. Thanks so much again <laughs> for your time and for your energy and for your enlightenment. <laughs> you know, I always appreciate you. I do too. Thank you again and all the best. Good night. All right. Talk to. Bye-bye. All right. Coming up next, our next guest, we'll take a, a second just to take a break. And our next guest would be Tyrone Haybor. Um, welcome, Tyrone. Are you there? Let's make sure he gets there. Okay. Our next guest is Tyrone Haymore, and he'll be here in a second. And he's here, I believe. Tyrone, are you there? Yes, can you hear me? I absolutely can. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I want to welcome our listeners to Port of Harlem Talk Radio. If you're listening via the Internet, you can type your question at the comment box. You can also call to listen by dialing on the phone, 516-531-9540. And if you want to also ask a question after you are connected, press 1, and please be in a quiet place. You can also visit portofharlem.net and click Port of Harlem Talk Radio from the menu to hear this and past episodes. Before we talk to Tyrone, let me tell you a little bit about him. Number one, he's a historian, curator of the Robbins History Museum, and he's going to do a talk, and I look forward to sharing information about the Cayman Region's Black Heritage during the Cayman Region History Program, and it's on our webpage under activities. I can't remember exactly what it is, but I'm sure Tyrone can let me know. I think it's a couple of days. But it's called the Cayman Region's Black Heritage Series. And in the series, they're going to talk about the impact, or Tyrone in particular, we're going to talk about the impact on aviation in the United States and Ethiopia. But you wonder how it has to do with the Cayman Region. Well, first of all, the village of Robbins, Illinois, where, which is in the heart of the Cayman Region, was home of the nation's first black airport and is one of the nation's first black towns. Robbins, as I alluded to, is in the Cayman region, which straddles the Illinois and Indiana line and covers the south side portion of Chicago, south suburban Chicago, and portions of Indiana, including my beloved hometown, Gary. Welcome, Tyrone Haymore. Thank you. Welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, so get us up to speed. Let me start off by asking you this question uh, about Robbins. But first of all, let me mention that Robbins is a town of about 5,000 people. In Illinois, we call places that small villages. And it's a 30-minute drive from Chicago and a 30-minute drive from Gary. So how and when did Robbins become into existence between these two better-known cities? Okay, the village of Robbins uh, actually had its beginning back in 1892 when blacks began to migrate here through that great migration period and uh, by way of Chicago. And uh, because coming from the South and headed to Chicago, they weren't adjusting very well and to urban, a uh, semi-urban uh, farm area. Uh, and, of course, many of them lacked skills of reading and writing abilities and uh, qualification for various jobs that were demanded in a, in a city. But they heard about some land that was going to be made available south of Chicago that later became uh, Robbins, Illinois, and that's where they were enticed to come based on a a man by the name of Eugene Robbins who opened the land up 
for blacks to sell, and it reminded them almost identically of the South that they had lost because now they could do things that they were used to, farming, raising cattle and chicken, horses and pigs and goats, and have their gardens. And that that's what really made Robbins Rugger popular at that time and began to flourish. Uh, up until about 1970, Robbins had a population of close to 11,000 people. Since 1970, it has constantly dropped uh, to the point that it's now down to about 5,300. But uh, that's uh, where we are, pretty much. Okay, it's interesting you mentioned that because just to say that it's not, uh, just to add that it wasn't a isolated event. I mean, even in Gary, there was an area called, or is an area called Small Farms, which was also like Robbins. It was built right outside of Gary, and it was for blacks who didn't like the idea of being in the city, but they can be near Gary, but still farm and have chickens. <laughs> yes, and, yes. But, but it was interesting that that happened, that that happened, that it just happened. Um, so Robbins Airport was built in 1931. It was the first black-built, owned, and operated airport in the United States. And I believe it lasted only for two years before a storm destroyed it. Nevertheless, it was also the beginning of the now-famous Tuskegee Airmen. How and when did the Robbins Airport come into existence? Okay, again, like you said, it really came into existence in 1931 by two gentlemen, uh, black pilots, and they were pioneer black pilots. That was Cornelius Coffey and uh, John C. Robinson, uh, with the help of uh, two women that they trained at the time, which Janet Harmon Braggs and Willa Brown. Uh, now, yes, only true it is true that the airport that was established in 1931 in Robin was only there for a couple of years, and it was destroyed by a violent windstorm, which they were prepared to rebuild, but they got talked out of rebuilding it uh, with the Rendezvous Airport that was located and well, at that time was considered a suburb of Oak Lawn, Illinois. It's now called Bridgeview, Illinois. There was an airport there called the Harlem, uh, the 87th and Harlem Airport. Now, don't confuse with Harlem, New York, at all. <laughs> there was, it was just it, Harlem was a was a street avenue. It was a major highway that intersects with 87th Street in Chicago. But it was a suburb that later became Bridgeview in Illinois in 1947. But prior to that, it was just a kind of unincorporated area, but had an airport that uh, was working in uh, conjunction with the Robbins Airport when they were in Coffee and Robinson were training pilots to fly back and forth. It was a rendezvous point. And uh, the white owners of the airport at 87th and Harlem knew how talented these two black guys were and they, they just uh, basically fell in love with them and what they were trying to do. So when the, air, when the Robert Airport was destroyed by a tornado that hit the area, they told them, don't waste your time trying to rebuild that Robert Airport. Just move your operations here to 87th and Harlem. We got, we got hangers here. We got classrooms. Everything is all set up. You just you don't have to waste time trying to rebuild the Robbins Airport. So they took that advice, and that's what they did. Especially at the same time this happened, word had reached Africa, Ethiopia, and uh, about these two incredible black men who became pilots. And uh, Ethiopia was very much interested in getting their aviation program off the ground, and they sent their ambassador here to talk to Robinson and Coffey about coming to Ethiopia to train and get their aviation program going. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, Ro- uh, Robinson said that he was he was would accept it. Uh, Coffee decided he would not go. He would stay here and continue to develop the training here and uh, in America. Yeah, I want to talk more about his going to Ethiopia. You answered one of my questions already. That how, I was wondering how he even got there. Um, but uh, and you mentioned that he was a notable instructor and he was one of the founders and. And I believe he was the Supreme Commander of the Ethiopian Air Force. Is that correct? That's correct. Robinson Robinson made a a heck of an impression on Emperor Howard Selassie, and uh, they began to train and develop, and they had to move quickly because we're talking about 1933. Yeah, the same year the airport was destroyed in Robinson. uh, But there was the threat of Italy, 
Mussolini threatening to invade uh, Ethiopia, and Ethiopia knew that it was going to probably end up in a war if it couldn't get the League of Nations to support them and stop the Italians from trying to take over the country of Ethiopia. Uh, and so let me just say this also while, before we get into Ethiopia too much. It was at the same time that when Coffee, Coffee, Robinson decided to go to Ethiopia, Coffee stayed here in the United States and continued to develop the program of training hundreds of, of African-American aviation that eventually led to, uh, and we'll get to that at some point too, uh, the beginning, the true beginning of the Tuskegee Airmen. Was started. Was start was it had its insemination here in Robbins with Coffee and Robinson. Robinson, uh, prior to getting into aviation, was involved in on, uh, automation, uh, automobile uh, manufacturing, and and how uh, they were enrolled in schools that taught auto mechanics. Uh, and Robinson just happened to have been, been a student at Tuskegee. He graduated from there in 1924. Um, I think it was 1924. I might be a little off on that date, but anyway, he was a grad. He was a yeah. He was a 1924 graduate of Tuskegee in auto mechanics and found this his way Robinson. to Detroit. This is Robinson, uh, correct? No, yeah, long before Robinson was involved. And who graduated from uh, Tuskegee? Robinson. Okay, right. John and this C. the one, that ended, and he's the one that ended up in Ethiopia. Yes. Okay. And um, when these two men, uh, uh, before they built the airport in Robbins, I need to say this: they they were they both met. Both of them were Southerners. They both were born in 1903, which is also the year that Aviation was born with the Wright brothers, coincidentally. But these okay. men both were trained on mechanics, and they ended up in uh, Detroit, where. They make cars, and they could have a, a much better career making good money. And while there, they picked up the newspaper that read, the headlines read that Bessie Coleman, the world's first black wo- woman pilot, had died in a, in a, in a uh, mishap. And, uh, and they heard about her, knew about her, and they discussed it. And they decided that, well, if what she was trying to do was the segregation problem uh, in this country was horrible with regard to teaching blacks aviation. And Bessie Coleman couldn't get training in this country, so she left and had to go to France to learn how to fly. But she returned to the United States with the idea of a career herself of building an aviation program for blacks in this country. And she was at uh, raising money in Florida when she had this accident that led to her death. And Coffin Robinson read about this in the newspaper, and they decided that you know, what she was trying to do is something that, you know, we, we're we both interested in aviation, so uh, why don't we take over what Bessie Coleman left off? Let's continue her legacy of trying to build an aviation school for blacks, and that's what they did. And they knew that there was a school in Chicago called the Curtis Wright Aeronautical University on Michigan Avenue that was one of the premier schools, and they decided that they would get together and uh, they say, we'll check it out, and we'll see if we can get enrolled in that school and learn aviation. And then if we're successful, we can start our own uh, aviation program for blacks, and blacks won't have to go over to Europe and learn how to fly. They can learn to fly right here, and this could be a very lucrative career for both of us. And that's how they ended up, um, of course, when they went to the, the university, the um Aeronautical University in Chicago, Curtis Wright, which was owned by the Wright brothers and a man named Glenn Curtis. They were, the race car was played on them there. They wouldn't admit them when they found out that they were black. But on their way uh, out the building, they very disgusted. Uh, they saw a bulletin, uh, Robinson saw a bulletin on the bulletin board looking for a janitor for the school. So he uh, went back to the counter and said, do you all accept blacks as janitors? He said, sure. <laughs> He said, put in your application, you might get the job. And that actually led to him getting into the school. That was a plan that he had. Well, if I could just get in there some kind of way, I could eavesdrop and I can learn something about aviation, maybe enough to, for us to just teach ourselves aviation. And it worked. Wow. Uh, he was able to get, yeah, he literally, 
uh, got a job sweeping up the classrooms uh, there at the aviation school, and he was eavesdropping at the same time. And it got to be so noticeable that even the instructors were aware that he was eavesdropping and taking notes. And one right. day, instead of emptying the garbage into an incinerator, uh, uh, he took he noticed a book was in the. He, in fact, uh, Robinson would take most of the garbage in the garbage can, and he would take it home. He would take all those notes and, and papers that was in the garbage can to his apartment and study them. One day he found a manual in there that showed you how you could build your own small airplane in your backyard or your garage. It was called a heat parasol airplane. So he ordered the plane. The plane cost about $600, and that's because the engine by itself cost half amount of the, the, the airplane itself. He didn't have six hundred dollars, but he was able to raise three hundred dollars. So he, in, in, at his auto garage he established on the south side of Chicago, he ordered the kit to build the plane. And he said, "Well, the engine costs another three hundred. We'll figure out later on how to get an engine in here, but let's see if we can build the airplane." So he ordered the kit. The kit arrived. They began to assemble the plane together. And his work at the uh, aviation school. Uh, led him to be be friendly with some of the instructors. He entitled one instructor named Mr. Snyder. He said, Mr. Snyder, he said, listen, I built an airplane in my garage on the south side of Chicago. I'd like for you to come out and take a look at it and see if we did it correctly. And, of course, Mr. Snyder was surprised and shocked. You you did what? You know, he said, we built an airplane. He said, well, this i got to see. I don't believe you built an airplane. So he goes out to the garage on the south side of Chicago and see that is. he said, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with this. This is like each parasol. These little small planes you can build them with a kit. He said, but he said, your dials look okay. Your 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 cables look all right. And the way you're selling everything looks good. He said, but what is this strange-looking engine you got in here? Coffee, uh, Robinson had put an engine in there that was not the engine specified for that plane. But reading the manual, he noticed that the specifications for the engine for that plane was almost identical to that of an engine in a motorcycle. And he happened to have a motorcycle. He took pulled the, motor, the engine out of his motorcycle and retrofitted it to that airplane, that little small airplane. He said, well, the question now is, you put this strange looking engine in here, but will it fly? He said, well, that's why we got you here. We want you to try to test fly it and see if it will go. Of course, he was nervous about it, but to make a long story short, they finally convinced Mr. Snyder to take the airplane over to Washington Park uh, Field in Chicago and uh, started it up. It moved around the ground like it was supposed to. They said that, so they told him, they encouraged him to try to get it airborne. And sure enough, the plane took off into the sky just like any other plane with no problems whatsoever. He made quite a few circles in the sky before he finally landed with uh, the same precision. And when that happened, the instructor, uh, Mr. Snyder, went back to the school and told the authorities, they said, you know those two black guys you wouldn't admit to the school? He said, yeah. <laughs> he said, well, they, they have taught themselves how to build airplanes. And uh, he said, they did what? Yeah. And he said, well, have they taught themselves how to fly yet? He said, no, but I bet you they will if we don't. He said, well, wow. we'll back in here. We'll them because mm-hmm. one of the one of the Mr. Coffee was giving it to file a lawsuit against him for discrimination. So let me go on to show here. The 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 authorities finally agreed to accept them into the school because of their unique talent in auto mechanics and then they proved that they built an airplane. So they didn't see any reason why they, but they said we will give you private lessons at night on the seventh floor of the building. <laughs> I wish the general public we're going to keep it quiet, but we're going to teach you what you need to know uh, how to fly these planes and see if you can uh, get your credentials. And make a long story short, they did, and uh, they did it in record time. They were they were qualified mechanics. They did so well. The school actually said, "Well, you have successfully integrated the school. Maybe we'll just go ahead and set up a, a, a class where you can just start. We'll just start accepting other blacks." in the school to train them, and you guys can be the instructors, the black instructors. Uh, so they did that for a while, but there was still a racial problem with other, with the white students in the school who later found out about them and didn't like it, and it was creating a lot of problems for them. And Robinson and Coffee decided that they would leave the school and just go ahead and do what their original plan was to start their own black aviation school. 
But when they went to City Hall to get a permit to start construction of an area in Chicago, City Hall played the race card on them also, and they said, okay, well, now we can't do anything in Chicago. He said, well, there's a little black town just south of Chicago called Robert. Let's go out there and talk to those officials and see. I bet you we can convince them to let us build an airport. And they did. They talked to the Mayor Robbins, and he said, he said, will we get you, give you a permit to build uh, uh, an airport here in Robbins? Of course we will. And not only that, we're going to help you build because you're going to need help. Okay, well, let me, start, let me tell you. Cut down trees, clear runway, and weeds and boulders out the way, and began to build the Robbins Airport in 1931. Okay, that sounds that that sounds like such a it, well, it is an inspirational story because I wish that a lot of people would say, hey, you know, they told me I can't do something, but you find an innovative way to get it done. But Absolutely. I want to go back. But I want to go back and ask you. You said that the company that uh, they went to get help for originally was uh, partially owned by the Wright brothers and they discriminated against black people. So were the Wright brothers still partially owner and therefore partially responsible for discriminating against black people? Or did did, did the company just have the Wright brothers' name on it? No, the the, the company was, the the aviation school was one of the premier aviation schools in America for training pilots. And it was owned jointly by the Wright brothers and a man named Glenn Curtis. So now, they, they were establishing schools like that in several other places throughout the United States, but I think the one in Chicago was one of the first major uh, aviation schools that they uh, that they put up. The okay, the right still there, too, by the way. So the Wright Brothers partially owned the school. Is that correct? Say that again? So the Wright Brothers partially owned this school. Is that correct? Yes, with Glenn okay. Curtis. With Glenn Curtis, and they openly discriminated against black people. Oh yes, yes. Okay. Shocking, okay. isn't it? Not going to believe that in Chicago, but you know, Chicago is just as segregated as the South. What, what I'm learning now in my later days, uh, I just had no idea that it was like that in the North, but it was. But I was just trying to add to the story of the Wright brothers because we never hear about the Wright brothers and their and their relationship with black people. But that's interesting in this particular case that it wasn't all that wonderful. But I also picked out of the story that John C. Robinson struggled, but he ended up being uh, Supreme Commander of the Ethiopian Air Force, but he was inspired by Bessie Coleman. So both of these guys were inspired by women or by a woman to do better. That's that's interesting. Yes. But you mentioned some other had heard about aviation, but at that time, the only thing that was available to blacks was automation, uh, automobiles, and that, that, you know, we're talking about the 20s, and uh, so that's what they, their aim was. But they've always been fascinated. And this story that we researched on Robinson and Coffee, where they both as kids had seen airplanes and were fascinated by them, but uh, they knew that uh, it was best for them to develop a career in, in auto mechanics. And there's some real juicy stories on each of them about what they did in auto mechanics, even. So we'll okay. talk about that another day, though. <laughs> yeah, let's focus a little bit more on now, Bessie uh, Coleman. Now, can we focus a little bit more on Bessie Coleman, who inspired them? Because you said that she died, and, and she before she had a chance to die, she wanted to do the things that they had done. That was to create a school for blacks to learn how to fly. And, and so he took up her dream. But you also mentioned the name Willa Brown. So who was Willa Brown, and can you speak a little bit about Bessie Coleman, because everybody might know who Bessie Coleman was. Okay, yeah, don't, there's a big difference. Uh, now, when, when they established the airport in Robin, when the airport in Robin was built, Janet, Bra- well, uh, when they were, um, when they were at the Curtis Wright Aeronautical School, uh, the school opened it up for them to be the first black instructors there, the first black class. In that class was a, was, uh, was a, a couple of women, two or three women. Uh, one was Janet Braggs and Doris Tanner. Will Brown was not yet in the picture. Okay, so when they left the school, they left the school with Janet Braggs and a number of others, and they began to build the Robbins Airport uh, and Aviation School and began teaching aviation at Robbins. It was at that time that uh, Robinson uh, met Will Brown, in a Walgreens uh, store, 
restaurant. <laughs> and it and in make a long story he is he told her what he did in aviation and she said, Oh, I'd like to try that and uh so she came out there and next thing you know, she joined the group. Uh and by her being an educator, she was um, a teacher in Gary, Indiana. In fact she uh she was married to one of the Gary Gary's uh first black alderman was her first husband. Oh, interesting. Uh, I can't think of his name right now, but uh, Gary, Indiana's first black alderman, was a black man that Will Brown was married to, and she taught at Roosevelt High School while yeah, she was there as an educator. Oh. Yeah, and she later went to um, moved to Chicago, and uh, that's where she went to Northwestern University and earned a master's degree at Northwestern. And then she was working part-time at a Walgreens lunch counter or something. That's where Robinson met her. And, you know, she's mm-hmm. a Lena Horne lookalike, so there was I, a lot yeah, of traction there. Yeah, look at her picture. I was going, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's a Lena Horne lookalike. And, uh-huh. uh, but she jumped for the opportunity to learn aviation, and she really – almost matched Coffee and Robinson in what she was able to learn and fasten. She soon became another uh, a, 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 the fourth instructor at the Robbins Aviation School. She okay, and Janet about- Bragg with Robinson and Coffee were training hundreds of black students aviation and until uh, they got the call to come to Ethiopia. And, uh, and then the, the, when the tornado destroyed the area, Will Brown, in fact, uh, if it hadn't been for Janet Braggs, uh, they built, they were to build that one, that first hangar to house airplanes, but they tore up one plane practicing, and Janet Braggs was the only one that had money. She married a man with a little money, and she had a little of her own, and she was able to buy two more airplanes uh, for the uh, instruction program in Robbins. And uh, they brought the little small heat parasol to Robbins also that they had built in their garage. But, okay, so um, we only got about two minutes uh, left. I want to wrap. We only got about two minutes left. I want to wrap this up because the thing that I, I wanted to get across that people who are much interested in this as I am that we need to look up Willa Bragg's mm-hmm. name. I think it's Bragg B R A G G. No, yeah, it's not Willa Bragg. Yes. No, it's Jan. No, it's Janet Bragg. Is that correct? Janet Bragg. And Willa Brown. Uh-huh. And, and uh Bessie Coleman. No, well Bessie Coleman now I don't think I don't think Coffee and Robinson or any of them ever knew Bessie Coleman personally. But I, I meant that they so. were I haven't seen I her. Meant, but I meant as you mentioned earlier no, that they were inspired in that respect. No, what I meant that they were inspired by the institution that inspired them to get into aviation because exactly. of what she did and how she had to fight against racism to do it. Right, 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 right. And I think that uh, Willa Brown was the first black woman to have a commercial license. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, I think those, that's yeah, the thing really. Janet, Janet could have been, but Janet was having a lot of problems with white instructors certifying her. And uh, she ended up going to Tuskegee to get some certification. And they, they played the race card on her even there. But she ended up uh, – Getting her life and then reading her book, you'll you'll see was very very excited about how she finally got her uh, commercial rating and then was able to match. Okay. Her. Even though she was advanced beyond Willa Brown, Willa Brown really jumped pretty fast. Uh, jumped her in a sense in the training program and got ahead of her a little bit there. Okay, I want to thank you so much. Okay, so I want to thank you so much for your time. And, again, I want to make sure people know that they can hear more about uh, Robbins, Illinois, and about uh, all these great people that did so much that we know so little about uh, because you're going to be at the 21st Annual Calumet Heritage Conference, and it's going to be online. It starts on Saturday, August 17th. And I think your day of speaking is um, Tuesday, October 20th. At 7.30 yeah, I'll be speaking on a six-day conference. I will be speaking on the 20th at about 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. And right, I'll be doing a presentation on what we're talking about today. Right. So if you missed all of this, you can also go on our web. We go on our webpage at portofholland.net. Thank you, um, Tyrone, for enlightening me. And it's so good to hear so much about Robbins. And this is Port of Holland Radio, talk, Port of Holland Talk Radio. 
And you can find more about us on Port of Harlem magazine at portofharlem.net. And if you're on Facebook, please like us. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks, Tyrone. Sure. I appreciate Thank your you. time. And I appreciate the light. Thank you. And I appreciate the light. Mm-hmm. And next time we have to learn Thank more about the about, the, about your uh, fundraising, too, we'll do another story on that on portofharlem.net. Very good. Thank you. All right. Take care.